All right, now we can get this party started, huh? Well, the kids are gone. All right. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. That's page 682 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi. We're going through the book of Malachi. Our questions, God's answers. This is our fourth week going through this book. And we're going to finish the first chapter today. How about that? So, if you, if you haven't had a chance to read through the book, again, it's only four chapters, I'd encourage you to take 20 minutes. Probably take you 20 minutes this week just to read through it, just get a, a sense of where we are, where we're going, the context, and these sorts of things. So, take time this week. It, it'll, it'll do you well, I think. Now, this week's question, which is cool, uh, Book of Malachi is organized into questions and answers. It's kind of like God's big press conference, as I mentioned before. This week's question is, how have we despised your name? All right, God's people are asking, how have we despised your name? So let's read Malachi 1, 6 through 14 together. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favors as the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Uh, That's kind of what we looked at last week through verse 9. I wanted to read again for context. Verses 10 through 14 is what we'll be focusing on this morning. Let's keep reading. Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. He's talking about sacrifices that are, that are uh, polluted, that are not pure, made to the Lord. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and your name is great. Read about it in your word. Your word, Lord, is also divine. It is totally other than us. And so we need your help to understand it because we are human. We're finite. So we ask by the help of your spirit this morning, you would help us understand your divine, your holy, your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right. Have you guys ever heard that phrase, what's in a name? Well, uh, through the magical world of the blogosphere, uh, I asked many of you to submit a real-life funny name that you've heard in your lifetime of a person you've encountered, you've, you know, went to school with, this sort of thing. And so I got back a few. I actually got back a number of names. And I'm going to share a few with you this morning, okay? Just, just a sampling of the names I received back. For instance, one of the names was first name Ima, last name Hogg. Yes, uh, someone named their child, I'm a hog. All right, so that was one I thought was humorous. Another one was uh, first name Candy, last name Barr. Someone with the last name Barr decided to name their child Candy, which is always a risky, you know, female name anyway when you name your daughter Candy. Uh, But Candy Barr. Uh, Here's some others. Uh, Misty Flowers. Also, uh, Summer Flowers, who I actually met at a sea swim here. Uh, also, two brothers with the last name Down, Ben Down and Neil Down, uh, together at last. <laughs> I'm, just, you know, I'm sure they did a lot together, had like a little comedy routine, maybe a variety show. <laughs> and finally, uh, someone... Someone actually submitted a name that they had met a woman at a Bible study once whose name was Sean Johnson. She married a, a man by the same name, Sean Johnson. Same spelling and everything. I just thought that was really wild. Sean Johnson. Sean? Sean. Sean. And imagine that had to be an issue during their courtship, right? I mean, think of it. Like, even if you're deeply in love, you got to think, should we talk about the name thing? <laughs> right? This is serious. Well, I, remember, I actually remember a name of a girl in high school in particular, and I can't mention her name because my sermons are PG, all right, so I can't mention her name, all right, but I, rem- I remember I kept her birthday invitation, because I was a young, immature high schooler, I kept her birthday invitation for years, because I thought, oh my gosh, this is so funny, I giggled to myself. But her name certainly, certainly had an influence on who she became, who she was. You could tell, just, just talking to her, being around her. I mean, there was an insecurity bred in her life, understandably, when she had this name. Anyway, so if you know me, I, I am a why person. I can be very particular. In fact, I'm stinking particular about having a purpose for almost everything in life. And it can become very annoying, all right? So you can imagine what it was like for us and, and poor Katie, my wife, when we were deciding on names for our children. All right, you know, a regular name wouldn't do. So our four-year-old's name is Gage. Gage, if you're familiar with Old English, any Old English scholars out there? Nope, I know. All right, so it's Old English for pledge or promise. And we believe that Gage is God's pledge of faithfulness to our family. All right, so that's kind of the the meaning behind that. Mason, our six-year-old, got his name. We narrowed it down to a few names that we kind of just liked the sound of. But I was reading 1 Peter 2 one morning, and Peter's talking about believers being built up as spiritual stones into this holy temple with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So I was thinking Mason, which is bricklayer, right? And we, we like this name. So God gave me a a vision of Mason as helping to lay spiritual stones. God using him to lay spiritual stones. And so came Mason. Now, 
there's a lot of weight that can be assigned to a name. And in the Old Testament, in particular, a lot of weight was assigned to names. It clearly influenced who someone became, which is pretty crazy. Like it's as if God knew and God had communicated this even through common sense to parents. They named their children these things and they grew up and 30 years later, something happened in their life where it all made sense that they had this name. For instance, Abram meant high father and Abraham, when it kind of a couple of vowels and consonants were added to it, meant sort of had an indication, kind of means father of nations. And that's exactly what Abraham became, right? Father of nations, the high father. But one of my favorites is, has got to be this guy, Nabal. N-A-B-A-L, Nabal. This guy, I mean, he had it rough. This guy's wife says of him to David, to King David, he is just like his name. This is his wife talking. He is just like his name. His name is Fool. And I was thinking, like, how did this work? Like, what, did the parents really just say, like, we're going to name him Fool? I, and, and I, I kind of was interested in this, so I looked back at some of the commentaries to see what their explanation was of this. And uh, one guy said, well, it must have been because the mother probably prayed something like, help him not be a fool, and so the fool stuck. And I thought, well, that's kind of a lame explanation. I don't know. So, a person's name sovereignly tended to contain what they actually grew up to be. I can't explain it. I can't, you know, I don't think back then they had those books with baby names in them. But it just happened. And God used it mightily. Now, the same is true with the name of God. In His name lies a theology. And this morning, we're going to preach through our first big concept in Malachi. Our first big concept in Malachi, which is Yahweh, God's name. What we're going to do is periodically, throughout this series, we're going to focus on a big concept that is repeated or emphasized throughout Malachi. It's an important concept both for Malachi and for our lives today. So, this morning, the name of God, Yahweh. As we see in these verses, for instance, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. My name, he repeats it again, will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Obviously, this is an important concept to fear, to glorify, to magnify the name of the Lord. What is his name? It's this capitalized L-O-R-D which in Hebrew is Yahweh. God's only proper name is mentioned five times in only five verses here in Malachi 10 through 14. The only two more lowercase ones, that was uh, the Hebrew word Adonai, meaning Lord or Master in an earthly sense. It could also be referring to a God, but it could also mean an earthly Lord or Master. But this name, Yahweh, is much different. So we're going to talk about the meaning and significance of Yahweh. And then to do so, we're going to look at the revelation of Yahweh's name. It happens in Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 15. We're going to look at that a little bit this morning as we look at Malachi. This is where he first reveals his name. So if you want to do a, uh, a finger bookmark 
and keep one finger. I choose the pinky because if you, if you manage to cut off circulation in the pinky, I mean, you're not really going to need it that much compared to the other finger. So use the pinky and then turn over to Exodus chapter 3, if you would. And we're going to look at the meaning of God's name. We're going to start, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15, but we're actually going to start at the end here with verses 13 through 15. Where God says this, it'll be up on the screen as well, or Moses said to God, all right, God, you have this plan for me. It's a pretty big plan. I'm going to go before the king of Egypt and do some, apparently some signs and wonders. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? By the way, I think this is kind of a funny moment. It's kind of a little bit of a schoolyard childhood comedy here. You see what he's basically saying? He's imagining this moment where he's going to like kids and saying, yeah, guess what? Uh, God sent me? And they're basically saying in turn, oh yeah? Yeah, what's his name? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I don't know. Right? This is kind of what Moses is imagining here. Which is kind of cool to think about because Moses is just a normal guy. We've got to realize this about some of these great figures in the Old Testament normal, sinful guys who God chooses to use. And he's worried about, yeah, God, what if they say, you know, oh yeah, what's his name? Don't worry, Moses, I'll take care of it. says it here. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Meaning of his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. Or I am that I am. Basically, I am. It occurs, this name occurs 6,828 times in the Old Testament. Including... 700 times in the Psalms. Where it's often shortened, that name is to Yah. In other words, Hallelujah. Right? Which means what? Anyone know? Praise God. Just praise God. So, Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. It's the only proper name that God assigns Himself. That we see him give himself. Which means that God is really the only one who can give himself a nickname. Right? Uh, any of you guys out there ever try to float out a nickname for yourself? It doesn't work, right? Uh, I remember in the, uh, in the college years, I tried to assign myself a nickname. Try to get it out there at one point, And the cyclone just didn't, it didn't sit. It didn't, it didn't cement itself into Ryan Oshlager lore the way I'd hoped it would. <laughs> I, had a little, I had a little sign with the cyclone. It's good on the basketball court, but it didn't happen. Because you can't, you can't assign yourself a nickname. It doesn't happen. Someone has to give it to you. Except for God. He is allowed to give himself his own name. In this case, I am who I am. Which is important because whenever we read things in the Bible like, Fear my name. Or praise his name. Or, as we just sang, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. The name it is referring to is this one. 
The name meant to exist throughout all generations forever. Yahweh. I am who I am. Now why is this significant? Why has this name become so significant? Because it is in the Old Testament and the New. We don't often think about this. Well, where do I see Yahweh in the New Testament? Well, you'll see it here in a moment. Why is this significant? Because it reflects God's character. And as we'll see in this Exodus 3 passage, there are three aspects of God's character that are revealed in this name Yahweh. Okay? We're going to look at those three. First of all, when you think Yahweh, think holiness. Think Yahweh, think holiness. Look with me in verses 1 through 6 of Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In other words, the bush wasn't burning up. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God said to him, out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. Then he says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. We think, Yahweh, think holiness. Yahweh is preparing Moses to be introduced as the I am. So he prepares according, even physically, taking off the dirtiest part of who he is, his sandals. Right? Remember, he's been tending a flock, so sandals can be dirty. All right, you, put, you, you, know, you put two and two together there. It's preparing them to see God as perfect, holy, and pure. The idea of holiness is the idea of being other than, separate from. This is why, this is why, when the Israelites wrote out God's name, Yahweh. They considered it so holy, so beyond them, they didn't dare even write the whole thing out. If you were to write the whole thing out, say in English, it'd be Y-A-H-W-E-H. But they didn't even dare to write that out because his name was so revered, they didn't even want to put it on paper. So they took out the vowels, the, the English vowels, if you will. And so as a result, it's Capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. And that's how a Hebrew would have spelled it in English. And still Orthodox Jews will today. And actually I kind of, this is the Bible nerd in me, I make a practice of that. When I write down the Lord's name where I see it, W-Y-H-W. No, I spelled that wrong. Y-H-W-H. Just to remember how other than me God is. How separate and awesome He is. It's why only once a year... You could actually, one person in all of Israel could be in the presence, full presence of God in his temple. There was a curtain that divided God's presence from his people. And once a year, the high priest of Israel could go back there and make a sacrifice. Totally other. This is so important because I think as, as God's people, we so often relate to God so, with such familiarity, right? So often we relate to God as buddy Jesus. The God of the Precious Moments figurines. You remember these things? Like you can buy them at Christian bookstores. And they're real cute. Don't get me wrong. They're like made of ceramic. And they have little kids in them. And they're like praying. You know, they're very cute. Very cute. Right? 
Yahweh would smash them into pieces. All right? Like, no! <laughs> Sorry. So, the children are cute. All right, I'll give you that. But you see what I'm talking about here. Paul puts it this way. 1 Timothy 6.16. He says, God alone has immortality. He alone dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. It's this brilliance of who God is. Who here is, who has recently gone to a movie theater during the day? A few of us here. You know that feeling when you walk out of a movie into broad daylight? You know that feeling? Well, what, what, what do you do? You kind of you kind of step back a little, don't you? Like, whoa! The sun gets on you. We're in need of a, uh, a new projector in our theater. All right, so uh, Jeremy Strickland, our, our main tech guy, Jeremy in the back, is back there. Does a great job for us. He and I came by the uh, theater this past week to, to double-check some measurements for this projector. Now, it was daytime outside, but it was dim, and all these curtains were up in the theater. See to your sides here. Now, we were talking about some serious life stuff when we were done, just chatting on the way out. And uh, on the way out, we stopped in the parking lot where we continued to chat for about a half hour. But it was 2.30 p.m., right? And the sun was blazing, and I left my glasses, my sunglasses, in the car. And I had one of those moments, you know, where you're like in a conversation, should I get my sunglasses? How long is this going to last? This is really important. I don't want to quit the conversation. But if I go get the sunglasses, it's kind of a sign that I'm leaving. You know what I mean? One of these kind of deals. I could have told Jeremy, he's a good friend. But the, the bottom line is, I ended up with a headache. You know, it was, it was, the sun was on me, it was blazing, I got one of those headaches that settles in behind the eyes. I get one of those. Now, had I known I was going to encounter such a light, or had I thought about it, I would have planned to bring my sunglasses. I would have revered this light as if it was God. You see my point, right? I wouldn't have approached it casually. I would have planned everything around it. God, unapproachable light. Do we treat him the same way? Do we plant everything around the brilliance of something that would just obliterate us when we encounter it in its fullness? Holy. When you think Yahweh, think holiness. When we think Yahweh, we should also think salvation. Read with me in verses 7 through 10 in this Exodus story here. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. They were enslaved at this point. I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. You may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There is no more repeated or emphasized salvation event in the Old Testament than God's delivering his people from the hand of Pharaoh. It's repeated over and over and over again, looking back to it throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets. It's always mentioned in connection with Yahweh. Thus, the name of Yahweh is always associated with salvation. Even here, we see 
Yahweh's foreshadowing of the incarnation. Jesus coming down to earth clothed in the flesh. Right? Where it says in verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them. Or if you have the NIV translation, to rescue them. Foreshadowing the incarnation. Who can be stronger to save? Who else is everywhere, so everywhere to deliver like the I am? In fact, the greatest claim, in my opinion, the greatest claim that Jesus makes to his divinity, to his being God, is in John chapter 8. Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees regarding the nature of their salvation and who they think he is. All right? And they claim that Abraham is their father. Oh, we're okay. We have Abraham as our father. And of course, Jesus says, no, Satan's your father. All right? Jesus, always the truth teller, right? Says it like it is. Jesus now ends the argument, ends the chapter with this. It's pretty stunning. John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. So the Jews said to him, Wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? He was dead at this time by a long time. You have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. Why did they finally snap? What caused them to go from an argument to a murderous mob wanting to kill and out for blood? Blasphemy. I am. It was very clear what Jesus was saying. Yahweh. Jesus claims to be Yahweh in the flesh. The I am has for a brief speck in history laid aside the full glory of his splendor and physical separateness in heaven to mix with human flesh and so set people who trust in him free. He alone invaded sinful flesh with his total holiness, that unapproachable light, so that in being perfect, and holy, he was a perfect sacrifice for sin, for our rebellion. He came to save. One more. Think Yahweh, think presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not gifts as in at Christmas. Presence. Verses 11 through 12. Let's look at that as well. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. I want you to pay attention to the sign for you. That I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You're going to come back to this mountain. You're going to celebrate God's deliverance. This foreshadows, folks, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus. Isaiah 7.14. Notice the similarity. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you what? A sign. He'll give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. God with us. Presence. 
Remember, this is also assured by Jesus himself. The last words of Jesus to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. What does he say? I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's not just, hey, I am with you. It's the I am is with you. This kind of intense presence it's talked about throughout the Bible. I think of Psalm 139 where the psalmist basically says, hey, if I took a queen-size bed to sleep in the clouds, or I built a man cave in the heart of the earth, Yahweh would still be there. That's my Ryan Oshlier paraphrase in Psalm 139. You get the idea wherever I will be with you. Friends, this morning I don't have an application in many ways for the sermon, for the I am. Other than to recognize that we are small and insignificant compared with his great glory. I don't have any practical tips for us this morning other than acknowledging all of those rights and demands that we clamor for all day are not when we bow before the I am. You know what I mean? Ultimately, it's because he's always other than us, but ever-present. And because of that, I don't have words to explain that. Some of it must remain mystery. And aren't you thankful for that? Do you want to have a God you can figure out so well? Donald McCullough wrote in an interesting book called The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. I love the title of that book, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. In this book, he has a bold chapter, McCulloch does, entitled, In Praise of Agnosticism. Now, while, of course, agnosticism, in other words, you acknowledge that there is a God, you choose not to worship or trust him, that's what agnosticism basically is, while that leads ultimately to death, there is wisdom to be gained, he argues. The agnostic allows for a remote and personal cosmic force that is powerful, but utterly unknowable. Given that stance, he asserts, the agnostic is spared from having to defend the puny, pathetic images of God that slowly rock many a Christian to a comfortable, lifelong coma. Like a lifelong nap. Unknowable. Awesome. There's wisdom to be gained from that. I'm not saying become an agnostic, of course. But how many of us have allowed our lives to be lulled to sleep with just sterile images of God? Always, we always think of God as friend. We never think of him as unapproachable light. And you notice, by the way, if you read God's word, I know I've said this before, God only calls people friend. No one in Scripture calls God friend. It does not happen. You can look it up. He says, Abraham, I've called you friend. He says, Jesus' disciples, I have called you friends. No one dares because Jesus, hey, hey, buddy. No. Instead, Peter bows down on the boat and says, oh, I am unworthy. I've got to tell you what I almost did this morning. Now, God says in verse 10, back to Malachi, God says in verse 10 of Malachi, uh, Malachi chapter 1, that he'd rather have someone shut the temple doors 
to lock them than endure casual worship. People just came, were like, okay, I'll do my thing today. Let's go to church. All right, cool. Oh, good coffee afterwards. Okay, time to go home. Right, he'd rather them shut and lock the temple doors and endure that. So I almost did this this morning. We almost had church outside. I'm not kidding you. About a week and a half, I almost sectioned off and locked our church doors. Just for verse 10. I came out here about a week and a half ago to check the temperature at about 10, 1030. You guys are laughing. I'm serious, though. Uh, and I checked where the shade was located. We dismissed the kids first, had the sermon, and then I preached. We go back inside. I really thought about it. I'm serious. And, oh, you know, yeah, I forgot about these pictures. Look at that. Yes. And that was my dream. It didn't happen. I was teetering on doing it. And uh, Katie convinced me not to. You can thank her. I, but I thought about the impact it would make if you came, you sat outside, you read verse 10 where it said, I wish the temple doors were shut. Then endured this casual, oh, yep, here we go again, church. I thought about the impact it would have. Of course, it may have also been your last Sunday worshiping at Sunrise Community Church. I'm like, seriously, I've got to get out of this place. It's terrible. It certainly wouldn't have been pleasant for, for a newcomer or those of you wearing wool or polyester church that day. But I, you know, I, admit, I still kind of wish I did it. You know, because we would never have forgotten the lesson of verse 10 of Malachi chapter 1. Revere Yahweh. We often come to the assembly, to come to church. And like God's people said in verse 9, what a weariness this is. I got to come again. I think God is also trying to say, I don't, don't think I'll automatically bless you because you claim to be my people. And you come on Sunday mornings just because of that. My name will be great among the nations, he says in verse 11. In other words, he's asserting, so I will get my glory somewhere else if necessary. If you're not going to give it to me, someone else will. And we need to hear that sometimes, don't we? It's good to remember because it humbles us. It reminds us that one, God will be glorified somewhere. He always will. If we aren't willing, he'll find another party. To also, even if we are willing and exalt him, it reminds us his being exalted among the nations, it's the nations. It's not going to be just us on Sunday morning. Isn't that glorious to think about? All over the world right now, people are exalting Yahweh through Jesus. I'm praying this morning, even this morning, that you might have a brush with the I am. The I am. How do you know you have such a brush? Consider the example of one of the great church fathers of all time, Thomas Aquinas. This dude's considered to be one of the greatest theologians of all time. Lived about basically a millennium ago. But this guy wrote libraries of books. All he did basically was write. And upon completing his greatest theological work, what's considered his greatest theological work, the Summa Theologica, Thomas suddenly stopped. He's right at the end. He suddenly stopped. Why? After an awesome, breathtaking brush with the I am, Thomas humbly confessed, I can write no more, for everything I have written is but straw. You'll know your brush with Yahweh. The I am has occurred when all your deeds, all that you've worked towards, all your accomplishments seem only as straw. And you know what? You couldn't be happier. Let's pray. Lord.
I am. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are. That's all I want to pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.